And so as Dan has asked you to turn, please stay in the letter of James. This morning's sermon is going to be an introduction and an overview of the letter of James. If you didn't catch his, I guess you'd call it a pithy saying, James is always has always been after the Hebrews. James was a pastor to Jewish Christians and therefore Hebrews. And so as a pastor, he was always after them. And he's after us this morning in this season. You're acting feelings and you're not submitting to your mom and dad. You're not acting like a Christian. I remember those words to me as an 11-year-old. I remember sitting in a field reflecting on what they said and it stung. It seems like you always run away from your problems and you don't face them as you ought. Oh, that was strong. That was broadly sweeping over me, Mom, when she told me that on the phone after I had responded quite immaturely to someone who had mistreated me. Why are you just sitting around when there's work to be done, pastor? Get going and just find something you can do, said a deacon to me as a young pastor as we were working on a building project at the church. When is the last time someone spoke bluntly to you and just said it how it is? She or he was right and you didn't like it at the time. You know you needed to hear it, or at least you knew later on. I just gave you three instances of times in my own life, either in childhood or young adult, that I hated hearing blunt words at the moment. And yet God allowed them to continue on in my mind and my heart And I remember them to this day, and they've had a lasting and a helpful impact. Welcome to the book of James, a book that is, I guess, blunt and beautiful. I love the book of James. I've heard that phrase when I've mentioned that to several of you, when I told you that I'm going to be starting to preach through this letter of James. Why do we love it? We love it sometimes because there's a lot of Catchy sayings, pithy sayings, very quotable. James is a very quotable letter. It is really practical. There is over 50 imperatives where it just commands. But I want to tell you that James does not care to tell you what you want to hear. He's going to get right to it. He's going to get to business real quick and he's going to challenge our our lives and our hearts. We need the book of James. If you're here at Faith Church, we desire... To take God's word, all of it, and have a well-rounded diet. We've been in the Psalms and studying the Psalms, and we need the Psalms. We're going to come back to the Psalms and pick up Psalm 17 sometime probably in the fall. And if you come on Wednesday nights, we're picking verse by verse. Sometimes just one verse or two weeks for one verse. And we're working through Philippians to learn how to study and understand how Paul wrote his letters and the gospel and doctrine that comes from there. Now we enter James where, Lord willing, we'll take about 17 
weeks to go through this five-chapter, 108 verses in James, the letter of James. So this morning, I wanted to ask three questions, really, of James and answer them for you this morning. Who is James? And who is his audience that he wrote? And, and what, what does he say? And I want you to do this. I, I think the best way you can be helped this morning would be to have James open because I'm going to refer to different of those overview sermons to kind of help us see the forest. And then we're going to take some big clump of trees week by week of that whole forest of James that has been inspired by God for our, our strength, our growth, our salvation, and our continuing on in the faith. So let's look at these. I guess the way, another way I want to say, ask these three questions here, I want to say it this way. James is a messenger you will want to listen to. And secondly, James was written for Christians who have needs just like us. And thirdly, James has a message that we need to seriously pay close attention. So much so that I, God willing and his spirit working, some of you, I pray, will get saved over the next few months through the message of James. So who is James? James is a messenger you will want to listen to. Verse 1, Dan just read it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all he says. Paul, the apostle, when he writes Romans, has about five verses of introduction as he introduces himself, not because he's proud, but he has a specific point. James just gets right into it. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to use the present tense as I describe James here in a minute. James is in heaven having been martyred for Christ, killed by the Romans, or actually by Jews who are persecuting the church in around A.D. 62. But though dead, he still speaks. His inspired words are given to us. So here, who is James? I just want to say James is a servant, and James is a subject, and James is a brother, and James is a pastor. First, James is a humble servant of God. He says, James is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he describes himself. He's a servant. This is a way that God's men have often described themselves. Moses, the servant of God. David, the servant of God. They, they serve. They, they, they're not the authority. God is the authority, but they come under as a, in liter, most literally the slave of God. I am to do his bidding. And so we must remind quotable wisdom, sometimes rebuking and commanding words from ancient literature. These are the words of God through his servant, James. He's our messenger. And as God's servant, he is still serving us by, his, by the Holy Spirit this morning and this year. I pray that you'll take James with your own Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we invite you to take one of those black Bibles and keep it. 
and mark it up. Mark it up today if you want. You find something interesting, underline it. James is not only a humble servant, but he's a loyal subject of the Lord Jesus Christ. It says here, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Lord is the word in the Old Testament was Yahweh, who is the true king of Israel. Jesus has risen from the dead. He is the king and Lord of the world. He is Lord, friends. And James knows it, and he proclaims it, and he writes this letter as a loyal subject to the king. He subjects himself. He submits himself to the king, the Lord Jesus. That's his name. He was from, which means Joshua, which really is Jesus, God saved, which is he is the anointed one, the promised one of Israel. As you would read through James... He's going to refer to it many times. He's going to say, you need to obey the law of loving your neighbor, which is the royal law. He's going to, that's in verse 8 of chapter 2. He's, he is focused on the Lord, and he wants you to be focused on the Lord. And we need to take his vocabulary. He'll say things like, I want you to be loyal and not commit spiritual adultery in loving this world, 4 verse 4. He wishes that we will hold our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of glory, 2 verse 1. He reminds us to bless in the name of the Lord and pray in the name of the Lord, 3 verse 9. He calls us to humble ourselves before the Lord, 4 verse 10. He teaches us to not be presumptuous, but instead say, as the Lord wills, we'll do this or that. He cares about the Lord. He tells us, at the end of this letter, be patient until the coming of the Lord. James is focused on his king, the Lord. If you were to go to royal.uk, the website, and get instructions on how to properly write the Queen of England, if, especially if you were a citizen of the United Kingdom, the ro- he's, she's the queen right now, the royal leader of the United Kingdom. It says this. If you wish to write a formal letter, you can open with Madam and close the letter with the form, I have the honor to be, Madame, Madam, your majesty's humble and obedient servant. Friends, James would gladly say, I have the honor to be the Lord Jesus Christ's most humble and obedient servant. Not in any bragging way, in some, but a subservient, a I am before the Lord Jesus Christ. I also want you to see who this messenger is. He's a true brother. There's a double meaning when I say he's a true brother here. This is important as you think about, as you start to take in James. It's quite instructive as you read all five chapters where he mentions brothers and where he doesn't mention brothers. And what I mean by that. If you are an underliner, and I did this this week, I, I highlighted every time he used the word brothers in here, here are some of them. He deceived my beloved brothers, 116. Know this, my beloved brothers, 119. 
My brothers, show no partialities to one. Listen, my beloved brothers, to five. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? 2.14. Not many of you should be teachers, my brothers. 3.1. I'm going to keep going. That's in 310, 312-411-5757-510-512-519. I wonder why he keeps doing my brothers. Well, he's a, he's a, bro, a true brother. He's writing to a church, and he church. Christians, I should say, and he loves them, and he is their brother in Christ. He speaks as a true brother, a sibling. That word, my brothers, literally could mean brothers and sisters. It means siblings. And he's saying, and here is the irony, where he doesn't, the irony is found in this. He doesn't mention his literal brotherhood. When he says to the church, my brothers, he's not referring to, well, I have three brothers. I have Matthew, Antonio, and Marco. I call them my brothers, but I call you my brothers and sisters. And James chooses to omit maybe the most, what we would think is the most important brotherhood he had because you see, James is the brother of Jesus. He is the half-brother. Mary the mother of Jesus, you know, Luke 2, Christmas, is James's biological mom. James is this half-brother of Jesus. We know that James wrote this book, and it's not James, the brother of John, because James, the brother of John, was martyred in Acts 12. This James is mentioned in Matthew 13, 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? They're referring to Jesus. And is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Maybe some of you have not realized that Mary, she was a virgin until she had Jesus and then was with Joseph and had many children. James was one of them. But I wanted to add to this, James was not a believer in his brother while Jesus was alive. It says, and brothers did not believe in him. And they did not believe in him even unto the cross. And when Jesus hung on the cross, there was no literal brothers to stand by Mother Mary's side. And so Jesus on the cross says, John, behold your mother, take her in. Because James was nowhere to be found at that moment, we believe. But you see, God, Jesus raises from the dead, and chooses to appear to James. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it, he appeared to James. And then in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, he is new person and he's praying with the rest of the apostles and he's waiting for the Holy Spirit to come down. So why did James start with James? I mean, I would be tempted to do this. I'm writing you, I want you to hear my credentials. James, the brother of Jesus. I... I watched him grow up. I, I have all of this special knowledge. Maybe it's because he knew that being the half-brother of Jesus, sharing the womb with the same womb with Jesus, Mary, was not spiritually good enough 
In fact, it meant nothing. Something much more significant that you and I can have. You, my brothers, James says. I want you to know my brothers who are in Christ. That's the messenger. The last thing I want you to sit here about this messenger that I'm saying you need to hear from, he's a pastor. We don't see that here. It doesn't say Pastor James. But we do know this because if you were to read through the book of Acts, you will find in the middle section of Acts, especially leading up to chapter 15, he is now the leading pastor in the, in the growing and strong church of Jerusalem, but a church that was scattered because of persecution. And the councils and people would come to James as the leader among many elders. He is in a sense the senior pastor if they had such a title. And he was a leader greatly respected and loved. He's a pastor and he writes as a pastor. This letter is a letter from a a, a pastor writing to his sheep who are scattered because of persecution and he's concerned for them. And he must have really loved them and they must have known that he was, they loved him and he loved them because he could be really blunt. John Newton, a pastor in England was known to have said that, he said, my congregation knows how much I love them and I can tell them anything difficult or painful because they know that I'm bringing them truth from a loving heart. And so it is with James. So who is this audience? Who is he writing like us? I want you to hear that. He says in verse 1, to the 12 tribes or the 12, to the 12 in the dispersion, Greetings. He says, to the 12 tribes that are in the dispersions, greetings. That dispersion word is capital D. He's writing, that's a formal word. Those who have been scattered throughout, that are literally was Jews that were scattered about. We believe, I think in Acts 8, 1, it says that when Saul, the apostle who was Paul, he was bringing persecution and executions, and there rose... Acts 8.1, on a day, a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So they're scattered, and he's writing to them, and I believe they are, many of them Jewish Christians, but Jews and Gentiles, true believers in Jesus Christ, and a picture of really what, who we are, scattered throughout the world. We are God's people the true people of God, a holy priesthood called by Jesus into his kingdom and we are being called. Now, I'm going to say many, several things just quickly about this as we fly over this letter. We have many things in common with just a few of them. I wrote, they were believers susceptible to persecution and various trials. Now, you and I might right now, we aren't subject to persecution in a hard-handed way, maybe mockery, maybe pressure to kind of take the world's ways rather than this book's way. But James's audience were literally being persecuted, but they were going through various trials, and I know that you're going through various trials. It can come from relationships, money issues, physical pain, your own self and selfishness. This audience that James was writing had troubles, and so do we. Secondly, they're believers susceptible to hypocritical living. You know what a hypocrite is? 
Uh, there's multiple definitions. A hypocrite is a person who puts a false appearance or virtue or religion. He's not virtuous. He's not religious. He's not godly. But he wants you to see and look, wants you to think that's the case, and he tries to show off and put a costume on. Or it's a person who acts in contradiction to what his stated beliefs or feelings are. James is concerned that the church that are scattered and even being persecuted, but are, they're exiles right now. They're refugees in different places. They're not at home. They're under this pressure. To be honest, friends, Faith Church, Christians and churches do not have an impeccable record or reputation when it comes down to being sincere, non-hypocritical people. Isn't that true? And this letter, in writing to an early church, probably, and I haven't said this, maybe just 15 years after Jesus rose from the dead, literally, it's the first letter, it's probably the first thing written in the New Testament. As he writes this, he says, Beware, you are struggling with hypocrisy. You say that you follow Jesus, but your life is not showing it. You want people to think that you are something, but what's really going on in your heart is not so good. Don't you think that we have some of this in common with the audience of James? Another, another factor, these are believers, number three, susceptible to selfishness. And divisiveness. I don't, I know I don't struggle with selfishness, but maybe you do. And I hope you chuckle really loud. My family probably does. We, we, all, we all struggle with selfishness in that first century. He urges them to stop their quarreling in verse 1 of chapter 4. And he says it's because they have selfish passions. And so they just want their way. Me, I want to be first. He pleads with them to quit treating the rich and the poor differently. Treating the rich, great, because they could get something out of the rich. And the poor with partiality. 2 verse 1. He calls them to have peace with one another. He tells them they're far too often living according to their selfish desires and their passions. And we see that throughout chapter 3 and chapter 4. Oh, friends, we need this letter to be like a mirror so that we would look in it and we would get on our knees and we'd confess our sins and have the selfishness of our own heart, our own passions, our own desires that are not submissive to God's word and God's will to rebuke us so that we would confess those and look to God for cleansing. Fourthly, these are believers susceptible to worldliness. In chapter 4, he's going to write in verse 4, whoever is a friend of the world is an enmity with God. And he's saying, you, a problem you have is you're, you're not an adulterer to your wife, but you're an adulterer to God. You say that you're devoted to the Lord Jesus Christ, but you're devoted to other things. Well... If there's anything that's true about the American church, it's this, that we are far too often consumed not with the beauty and the lordship and the commands 
The goodness and the relationship that we have moment by moment with our Lord and Savior and all that he's given to us, all his promises, but by all the other things in the world that will attract our hearts and our attentions and cause us to run towards those things. And James is writing to an audience struggling with worldliness. And so are we. Lastly, which leads to the last big point of the sermon, he's writing to believers susceptible to wandering away from the truth in some, at first, some little things that could lead ultimately to big things that could lead to the point where they're no longer Christians anymore. Not that they lost their salvation, but they would prove that they weren't real in the first place. And he's going to plead with them who are wandering to come back. So that leads me to this final big picture James, and it's a messenger you want to listen to. You want to sit up in your chair. You want to sit up, you want to take note, not only now, but in the next several months, and go to and be a student of James as he guest speaks at this church over the next several months. But you also want to know that, hey, what he's going to address, you need. And this is what he, this is what he addressed. There's a lot of ways I could summarize and fly over and summarize the content of the letter of James. James, I want to say this, James has a message we need to seriously pay attention to. I said this at the beginning. I believe that God will, could use by his Holy Spirit as we study this, James, you will read and study and listen and you'll, you'll take some tests in your mind, in your heart, in your life, and you might go, I need to be saved. Yeah, I, I knew about Jesus. But... Something's changed. The, the mirror of God's word was revealed, a phoniness. And now I come to him fully and truly. Blessed be God. Oh, I hope that you will take this seriously. I believe we, we pray for something called revival. A, a work in our church, in our life, where God so ways show, shows us how beautiful God is and how great Jesus is and how good this book is and how we need him and how it changes everything. We pray that God will do that in our lives. Oh, let us pay attention seriously to this letter. And I want to point to you in this letter just three things, three ways that James points in this letter. He, that, he says that we can wander from the truth and he positively points us to it, saying, don't do that. Bluntly, he says it. And he says, now follow the truth. I like how Mark Dever says it. He says it this way. He gives us three myths, three perennial myths that religious and Christian peoples believe that he takes and he debunks these myths. He challenges these myths. He challenges us to wander into believing those myths. I think of this when I... When I think of when Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 4, he says he gave us teachers and preachers in order to teach and to equip the saints for the work of the ministry so that they would not be like children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. They're believing some bad doctrine or some truth, and Pastor James here in this letter is saying, don't believe that. Here are three myths you're susceptible to believing. Here they are. Number one, Trials are bad. He's going to say, it is easy for us. Now, I don't think there's anyone in this room who will say, 
Yes, Pastor Daniel, trials are bad, but there is an emotional repulsion to trials. And you can might even get mad at God when you go through trials. And James is going to say in this letter, trials are not bad, but trials are a reason to rejoice. We're going to look at this more fully and focusedly next Sunday as we take one through four, the passage that Dan read. He will begin the letter quite bluntly. He's writing to persecuted Christians scattered abroad, and they get, oh, did you get here? We have a letter. Let's listen to this letter that James, our pastor, read, wrote for us. Let's hear. Let's sit. I bet he's here to comfort us. We're going through a lot of hard times. Count it all joy when you go through trials. What? Weren't you going to say, I'm sorry for all the trials you're going through? Aren't you going to just kind of pat me on the head a little bit? James bluntly jumps right into this letter. And at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter, he bookends the content of this letter with, trials are not your enemy. Count it all joy. Don't think that way. Look at verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. But I think you would say every kind of trial, anything that you would say in your life is a deprivation of something that you were comfortable with. And it's taken away from you. It might be small. Count it joy because God cares about the very hair that comes. He knows the very hair that falls to the ground And it's part of his care, so he works all things together for good. Count it all joy. And he says, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. It's a testing of your faith. And when that gets tested, it produces steadfastness. And we'll look at this next week, patience. And let patience have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Trials are not good in and of themselves, don't get me wrong. Don't mean we should run around looking for suffering or cause it upon ourselves. Believe me, it will come. But don't believe the lie that trials are bad. And that's only because we have a really sovereign God who works over all things. The pain in your relationship might be because of sin and you need to repent of it. But the things that are outside of your control or even in your control that you're repenting of, God is still working. He'll say, blessed is the man who remains steadfast, doesn't give up under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. He would want our hearts to be so saturated with that truth that you go through a trial tomorrow or this afternoon. It could be with your parents or your children. It could be through your money or your relationships. It could be from work. It can be from your own inward struggles. And he would want our hearts to more and more realize happy, blessed is the person who remains steadfast under trial, doesn't give up, looks to God. We'll look at what that means in the coming weeks. For when he has stood the test, he'll receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And he ends the letter. And he pleads, as a a loving pastor and true brother, he says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold and consider 
those blessed who remain steadfast. Oh, there's such a need in this world for Christians, for you and me to shine as lights in this world of Linden or wherever you live, who humbly and graciously embrace the trials of their lives and remain steadfastly looking to God whom we love and say, though he slay me, I will trust him because he is my God and I love him and he's came and he saved me. That's a miracle that's done in our hearts. But James wants to expose this myth that trials are bad. How are you doing with the testing of your faith? you might find yourself, we all will find ourselves at times not liking what we see. Let James, let God's word, let even this message bring you back. You don't have to like trials, but trials reveal who you are looking to and where your hope is and will like what trials produce because we learn to love the God who is working all those trials for our good and for his glory. That's the first myth, or even test. What do we do with trials? The second is, here's the second myth that he wants to expose, that we are far too easy to believe. Faith is what you think, number two. Faith is what you think. James is going to say, faith is, yes, what you think with your head, what goes in your mind, but it's, it's much more than that. It's something in your head. It's something in your heart, in your hands, and everything else. You see, one of the far too often Christians think, and I think it's true in James, to the audience of James, and it's true for Faith Church. Christians think that if we believe something in our head, if we say something with our mouth, if we hear something with our ear, Oh, that, I guess that's faith. That's, and we get saved by faith. And one of the lies of Satan is to get people to think that they're Christians when they're not. Oh, he would love to cause you to put your trust and rest in a decision you made long time ago and not be putting your trust in Jesus Christ today. He would want you to put your trust in the fact that you had an event where you went forward or got baptized or at camp you did something. All of those might be when God saved you, but it might not be far too often. There are people that say, oh yeah, I believe. But their, their belief, is contra- their, their statement of I believe is contradicted by almost everything they do in their life. And James is concerned that we see that faith is not what you think. It is much more than that. It is what you think and what you do with what you think. Jesus said, not everyone will enter in the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Because you see, on that day, the final day of judgment, there'll be some people that will come and say, Lord, Lord, I did these things in your name. I prophesied and I cast out demons. I did many mighty works in your name. I was doing it for you. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. You're workers of lawlessness. You see, one of the great lies of the enemy is to to so distract us, to cause our minds to focus on different things and think that we've got it when we don't have it yet. And oh, 
we miss out not only on eternal life, but the joy of the Christian life that God has for us. You remember Jason Mole's sermon illustration last week as he talked about real, authentic faith? It is, much more, it is one thing for us to stand around at some great feet as some very talented man walks across the tightrope of Niagara Falls and he can make his breakfast, so he can do all these things, carry a wheelbarrow across there. And we go, I believe he could even take me. And it's much different if we said, well, will you let him take you? Will you trust him to do that fully? And you see, believing in Jesus is far more than believing in your head that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, that he's God, and that he saves people. It is a wholehearted, confident trust. Faith is not just being a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And we'll see in this letter that he's going to say, faith without works is dead. True religion cares for the orphan and widow. True religion bridles the tongue. True religion will start to change your life. I have heard this over and over to men. When I disciple men, they'll say, yeah, pastor, I know I need to start doing that. And then I'll meet with them again. Yeah, I know I need to do it. I know I need to. And they don't do it. You have no faith in Jesus Christ when you're choosing to do that. Now, it doesn't mean you're not saved, but if you do not obey Jesus, what good is it? The Bible speaks of that over and over again. And I'm just saying, James is really blunt. He's going to say, if you're a Christian, you're going to obey. If you're, gonna, if you're a Christian, yes, you believe Jesus. And that believing is going to make a difference with your life. And if it doesn't make a difference in your life, you're not a believer and he's going to rebuke them, and he's going to challenge them, and he's going to love them enough to do this. He's going to say in James 2.14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can his faith save him? Not that kind of faith, because he didn't have real faith. You see, you need to hear this, friends. Faith that is not active. The book of Hebrews, and it, it gave different illustrations. By faith, Abraham or Noah built an ark, and God saved him as he obeyed God and built an ark. It says he had faith. Abraham had faith. I mean, Noah had faith. Now, if Noah had faith and said, God, I believe you, but I'm not going to build an ark, would he have been saved? No. His, the evidence of his belief in God was he obeyed him and built an ark. True saving faith says, you are the only one and the Savior of the world, and I put my trust in you not only to forgive my sins, but my life is now directed to you, and I'm going to obey you because I trust you. Now, we don't do that perfectly, and God's word time and time again is going to rebuke us, challenge us, and, cause us, and the mark of whether we're real is when we get rebuked, we're convicted, we confess and turn. Because you see, all Christians are sinners, but they're repenting sinners. They are responding to God's word and they're asking him to forgive and they're looking to him regularly. He's going to say, some of you say, I have faith and, I, and another person I have works, show me your faith Apart from your works, I'll show you my faith by my works. He's going to show, he's going to say a demon believes God. A demon believes that God is real 
and that he is the only Lord and that he rose from the dead. But a demon is not saved, doesn't trust in God, doesn't repent of his sins, is not saved. And we read of that in James chapter 2. James would have faith church here. Faith is not merely what you think or what you say or what you hear. Some of you, because you study the Bible, listen to sermons, go to church, we could think that we've got it. That can be very deceptive. The question is, is it moving you to live differently because you see Jesus differently? Oh, that's, that's the whole, that's our prayer is that you'll see Jesus Christ as the only Savior and Lord of the world and you will fall at his feet and love him and say, where else would I go? He is life and I want him and I trust him. That is a miracle that's done in the heart that I pray is done today and right now. I pray that even a little bit more as you hear God's word, you'll say, I want to believe him. And you'll go, where'd that come from? Thank you, God. You're moving my desires. I want to, my life according to where my mouth or my confession is. So much more I could say that on that, but I want to move to the last and third myth that he debunks, he challenges us. He reveals to the church and is like a test, and he says this, religion is private. That's the myth. So often we can believe that religion, and when I say religion, I, I just mean, I mean true piety, true godliness is private, is how the myth goes. James is going to say, religion, yes, is personal. Oh, yes. And there's a privateness to that, person, personalness. But, but it's also public, and it's corporate, and it's about a life together. And what I mean by that is we have a tendency, faith, church, and they did, I believe, as well, to make our faith as an individualistic spiritual reality. It's just very individualistic, and it doesn't have an impact on my relationships with other people. James will say, if your faith is real, you're part of a community. And your faith changes how you relate to this community. Your faith, if it's real, will not just stay inside. You'll need to talk about it with others. And you're going to talk in first in James 1.20, you need to bridle your tongue and control it. He says that some of you who need to be, you need teachers, yes, but watch out. Are they bridling their, and controlling their tongue? 3 verse 1. And he says, oh, you are prone to fight and quarrel. Don't you? It's a big deal. Your religion is not private. It's public. Everyone watches. And I know we use the word religion and say it's a negative word. And in that sense, it is. I just mean like this. Our godly profession of faith is not private alone. It is, about, it is meant to go on display. People are called your non-believing friends in your family and in your neighborhood and at your work or the people you grew up, they should be able to know that you have a bunch of friends who are Christians and it's called a church and you're committed to them in some radical way and you love them and you don't, you don't get in quarrels with them, but you're committed to them because Jesus saved you all together to grow and worship him together. And James is concerned that we throw away this privatizing of religion and it goes public in our relationships. He's concerned that we do not grumble against one another, 5.9, and that we don't break our promises to one another, 5.12. 
He calls us to a life of praying for one another when we're suffering and confessing our sins to one another and calling the elders of the church to come and pray when you're sick. He calls them to something that's far more than a private-only life, but a community life of confessing sins to one another and praying for one another and being a family as we live before our Lord Jesus Christ as brothers and sisters, siblings of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are three myths that are also like tests. How are you doing with those tests? Those are questions and tests that we will face and look at as we go in the coming weeks and the coming months. Say this to you, James is a messenger that you will want to listen to. We need to listen to. The Holy Spirit has inspired him. He comes as a loyal servant of Jesus Christ and he calls us to that same servanthood and that subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true big brother to us, calling us to the big brother Jesus. He is a pastor who pleads for your soul and he will warn you and urge you and bless you no matter what your age is. Let's listen to him. Let's let him meddle in our lives. Let him be blunt to you. Open your hearts. Would you open your hearts to this message? James is, is for someone generous in hypocrisy and selfishness and division. People who are vulnerable to lies and being deceived, let this book, let God change you. Trust in the truth that is found in this book. Please do this, Faith Church. Please do this, Daniel. This is a call to myself. This is a call to my family, my church family. I want to I show you this as we end this sermon. Would you turn to the last portion of James? So James 5, 19 and 20. James writes this. My, let's just add this, my siblings, my spiritual brothers and sisters. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. In many ways, that is what James is doing in this letter. Are you wandering from the truth, I want to bring you back and save your soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. James would say to us, I was the half-brother there to bed together in their little town in Nazareth as little boys. He would say, we came from the same womb, but that didn't help me at all. Don't trust in external things like that. I didn't believe in him. I began with unbelief and rebellion, but then I saw the resurrected Lord and it changed everything. Oh, that you would see the resurrected Lord and it would change everything like it did for James. I think James remembered when he was outside the room and they said, Jesus, your mother and your brothers and sisters are here. And Jesus, stretching his hands towards his disciples who believed in him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Oh, may that be. 
Let us pray. Father, I pray that you would help us as a congregation. I pray that we would heed the word of James. We would heed the good news that is brought to us, even through blunt rebuke, challenge, and conviction and testing. I pray that we would be helped and grow and shine as a light in this world. Oh God, refine us through your word Test us. And where we fall, find ourselves lacking, I pray that we would find restoration and salvation in you. In Jesus' name, amen.